Wednesday morning, and today we have a special episode, and we're going to have a few of these in the next coming weeks. Dr. John Patrick was at the CMDA conference. CMDA stands for Christian Medical and Dental Association, where I'm sure some of you guys know John from, and we're going to be playing one of those talks today. And in this talk, the topic is going to be millennials and the cancel culture, and this is going to be part two. Father, we trust that your that our prayer was answered in the last session, although it some ways didn't look like it. Uh, Lord, take charge of what goes through our minds and the way we think and talk together. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, the, the key to understanding the Jews is Deuteronomy, our Lord's favorite book. He quotes it more than any other, and yet we don't read it. When did you last hear a sermon on Deuteronomy? Uh, I've, I read it this month's read was Deuteronomy as a, a book that I, I like to read books as a whole. Uh, and as, I understand why we couldn't read it because we are so far from it in so many ways. Uh, you read it and if, you, if you're feeling comfortable at the end of it, uh, tell me how you managed it. Uh, uh, it certainly didn't make me feel comfortable. In that, that marvelous line, you shall not do what is right in your own eyes. Oh, that's the exact opposite of the woke world. Everything starts with me. For a Christian, it starts with God. Uh, and he's given us more than enough instruction for a flourishing society. We're not doing it. So, um, I want to move on now a little bit to how the mind of the Western world grew and then how it decayed because of what was originally a good thing that made a space for the things like woke thoughts and all those other things that we're dealing with to come through. Now, the ancient world, and indeed everyone pretty well before roughly 1277, was concerned with teleology, purpose. Explanations needed to answer the question, why? Science doesn't do that, you see, in the same way. I'll explain in a moment or two. Uh, but that was the norm. So, for instance, the two creation stories in, in uh, Genesis, which you can't uh, join together without, an, without some ambiguity, uh, never occurred to the Jews or indeed any primitive people because that wasn't what stories are for. The first question in pre-modern times is, what is the purpose of this story? Now, the clear purpose of Genesis 1 is God is the creator of everything and it is good. Uh, then the second story is about how we screwed up, isn't it? It has a different purpose for us to understand where we went wrong and where we continue to go wrong. Uh, they're not antagonistic to one another. They're complementary. Venn diagrams were not something we invented. God made a world that's full of overlapping realities. Uh, best way to think about almost everything uh, as a starter. So teleology is important. Now the good news, so you need some good news, it's coming back. Uh, in science. You can't get away from it anymore. How many of you have listened to uh, James Tour at all? 
Just one, two, my goodness. He's good, isn't he? Uh, I met him a few years ago uh, over dinner. A friend brought us together and we immediately clicked. Uh, he, his wife and he, they take 30 students home to lunch every, day, every Sunday. She has three women cooking for them every Sunday. Uh, and uh, we had dinner on Saturday night and he said, will you do my Sunday school class tomorrow morning? I said, they're not going to uh, thank you for substituting John Patrick for James Tour. He said, oh, I think they will. <laughs> so I did it. And then we went home and his house on Sunday is just amazing. Uh, and it, it buzzes with excitement, which is, can you imagine your teenagers and your university students leaving church to go home with a Christian and it, to buzz with excitement? That's what it should be like. Uh, I never went to the one that my wife went to in Oxford when she rescued me from losing any practical Christianity at all. Uh, she denies that she found out where I was and came to Oxford for that reason, but <laughs> if she didn't, the Holy Spirit <laughs> guided her. But she ended up, and it was years later that I realized it was the same guy. The, uh, the guy in Oxford was actually Jim Houston, who was the founder of Regent College. He was a professor of geography in the University of uh, Oxford. And she went to the church that he went to, and she got invited to his home. His wife uh, tells the story that when they got married, she said, Jim, I want our home to be used by the Lord. He said, good, so do I. She said, bring anyone you like, just give me two weeks' notice. The first Sunday he came home with 19 students. So <laughs> after that, it was over. So every Saturday night, some students would be helping Mrs. Houston fill the fridge with stuff for tomorrow. Uh, and I meet people who's my own life. I didn't, never went to it, but it wouldn't have turned out the way it did if my wife hadn't gone there. Uh, hospitality has got to become central to us again. Uh, it's, it's one of the amazing things about Deuteronomy, as you read it through. What God demands of the Jews in terms of hospitality is amazing. It's a very positive approach to the stranger that is within your gates, but it's also very strong. But, what's the but? Within these gates, God's rules hold. We've got the bit of inviting the strangers without recognizing that God's rules hold is the only way that makes that kind of hospitality possible. The Arabs themselves, of course, have a, a proverb which they, we ought to apply. Don't let the camel get his nose under the tent. You'll wreck you. Uh, and especially as Christianity is fading, we lose our way. Multiculturalism is a lie, you see. That's in Deuteronomy. The cultural story is what leads to culture. You cannot build a culture out of difference. Difference allows you an opportunity of hospitality, but you cannot build a culture out of a, mix, a, a minority mixture. It's got to come in different ways. Medicine is not multicultural because every patient you see inhabits a culture. And you have to find out what it is when 90% of them have a problem that is culturally based. And some things cannot be done. A little girl I told you about, 
whose parents took her home to die. That was a cultural norm for them. It's going to be a cultural norm in your office too, quite shortly. I mean, this last couple of weeks, Quebec has said that it's time we did euthanasia on newborns who will have an inadequate quality of life. How can you be so arrogant? Uh, who are you to judge? Did Helen Keller do us no good? Uh, I love uh, one of my other uh, much-loved American authors uh, uh, who I have name block for at the moment, now Walker Percy. He writes an essay about Helen Keller, which is a gem about the miracle that happened when a teacher took this blind and deaf girl into the garden. She could still smell. She knew that. And the orange blossom was in flower. So they walked to the well. And then she was trying to teach her, to, to teach her language through touch. And then she suddenly had an insight. And she put her, she pumped the well, put the hand under the water. She kept it because she liked the feeling. And she spelt W-A-T-E-R into the other hand. And Helen Keller later wrote, suddenly I realized every word had a meaning. And the mystery of language was born in her. And the rest, as they say, is history. W-A-T-E-R and the other hand in the stream of water. That kind of insight, Walker Percy writes about brilliantly. He wrote about euthanasia long before anybody else thought about it. Any of you read the Thanatos Syndrome? Uh, it's one of his novels. It's, in modern terms, it's about a crazy Catholic priest who's an Orthodox Christian with a small O, and uh, an equivalent of the leader of the EU. And the crazy priest fortunately wins the argument, but I won't spoil the story, it's brilliant. Um, I think it's called the Thanatos Syndrome, but that's what it's about, the killing of people. Uh, Walker Percy is also a good antidote, although he's Catholic, for evangelicals because he's so honest and he makes you face your feelings. Someone was talking about this to me just now. Uh, Love in the Ruins, I think, is the one that this comes from, but most of his novels have... Uh, a man who's got his life screwed up and often a Christian nurse who sorts him out or something like that. And this, this, in this particular case, the man is a, uh, uh, had just been to church. He was a Catholic and he said, he writes, he's sitting in the shade uh, of a, a bridge over the, the road and he says, I have just eaten our Lord's flesh and drunk his blood and I could fall in love with the next teenager who comes along. How is that possible? And then the nurse turns up and the story continues. But he's honest about the realities of how uh, animal side of nature has to be controlled. This is one of the many other woke things, the libertarian sex that is so uh, central to our world at the moment. Freud wanted libertarian sex, but he was honest. Do you know what he said about it? He knew what the drawback was. Do you know what Freud's drawback to limit libertarian sex was? It destroys creativity. 
As Michelangelo put it, you can't spend in the morning what you spent the night before. He's right. So the fact that people lived faithful lives within marriage meant you had huge amounts of energy that were properly directed as a result. In my own life, I would not have done what I've done if I hadn't been married to one woman and we hadn't been faithful to one another. Because I would have got out of control. There's no question about that in my own mind. There's little, the creativity is going down like this in science. And the best scientists know it. The difference between the piled higher and deeper, your PhD level, and the next level up used to be chalk and cheese. Um, and I've had the privilege of talking in some, to some of those people. And when you're talking about things that were real discoveries, when you, you don't even know what it is you're observing, uh, the language is not like a scientific paper. It's about beauty. It's about just how amazing this is. There's a sense of awe involved in it. Uh, now they want everything reduced, and it's reductionism we have to get to at this point, because it's what allows all these other things to grow. So the, the ancient world, and still in Africa, they have multiple, most tribes have more than one creation story, but they serve different purposes and they don't worry about it. They don't even see it as a problem. We do. That's reductionism in our lives. We want it all tied up within a framework that didn't come from the Bible in the first place. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts, not your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, or so my, my ways and my thoughts and your ways and your thoughts. So we should always be in the state of realizing this is incomplete, this is partial. Uh, it's not untrue. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful, but it kills the arrogance immediately. Uh, science at that level is good for your faith. It certainly brought me back in many ways. Um, so teleology. The ancient world understood it was necessary. So Aristotle, who dominated the world for 1,500 years intellectually, although he was totally wrong, on, certainly on his physics, wonderful biological observer, but his physics was wrong. And they talk, liberals, talk, liberals without a scientific background and without honesty about history talk about Greek science. Well, there wasn't really any Greek science to speak of in many ways. Astronomy, yes, but that was mathematics. Mathematics is, gets everywhere. Technique gets everywhere. Every society has techniques, but not, science is a different matter. And how it came about is something you need to be able to talk about a little bit. So Aristotle said, in order to give an explanation of something, to say you understand it, you need four categories. Uh, they're called uh, the material aspect of it, the formal aspect of it, uh, the technical aspect of it, and its purpose. Now, you don't need to, they have fancy Greek names, so you won't remember them, so I won't bother you with them. And the way to remember it is very simple. Think of a statue and Michelangelo, and you'll get Aristotle's four causes from that. The statue is made out of marble, shall we say. That's the material cause. But as Michelangelo said, he liberated what he saw in, the, in that block of stone. That's the formal course, the ideas that God had given, and the skills, not skills, the ideas that God had given. Uh, 
It's the formal course. Now, Michelangelo had a very good pair of hands and he knew how to use things. That's the technical bit of it. That's an essential cause. But the most important one was that Michelangelo made the statues to bring beauty into the world. And we're not doing that anymore. In fact, artists who do see things uh, and respond to things that are true, uh, and we don't, and they don't know what they're doing. We had a wonderful example in Ottawa where the, Ottawa paid a, a local artist quite a large sum, and he put together uh, an abstract in wrought iron, not wrought iron even, iron bars, and put it outside the police station. And he purposely made it out of uh, iron that would rust easily. It was an eyesore in terms of, uh, say, prettiness. But art isn't about prettiness, by and large. Uh, Thomas Kincaid is not a great artist. Uh, in the end, the public wanted it removed. But the artist was making a point outside the police station about the decay of law. The structure uh, doesn't have enough support to hold it up. But I doubt whether more than a few people ever realised that that's what he was trying to do. I don't know whether he really realised what he was trying to do. But we have your FBI at the moment is a good example, isn't it? Well, it's another part of this process. So, because Aristotle was an extremely bright man, he set up the ethical questions, but without transcendence, although he had an unmoved mover, he knew there had to be something beyond, but he knew nothing about it. It was just, he has to start somewhere. Who made God is just, uh, no sensible person goes along that line. That's, that's an endless discussion. It's meaningless, it doesn't go anywhere. It's got to stop some point with a concept that you can go no longer. That's why Anselm's definition of God, that beyond which nothing can be thought. It's not really an argument, but it still bothers philosophers to this day. So, because he was a smart man, he thought about things, and then, like modern liberals, he thought, if I think it, it's good, and it's right. So, he naturally thought that a big stone and a little stone, the big stone would fall faster. He never went to the nearest cliff to find out whether he was right. If he had done, the world would have been a different place a lot sooner. And people were frightened. You can be intimidated by extremely smart people, and you shouldn't be, uh, but they were. And he intimidated science for 1,500 years. And he intimidated doctors longer than anyone else. We were the last to give up on our Aristotelian categories for the practice of medicine. Everybody else had given up once uh, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler and Newton had done their job, it was over in terms of uh, Aristotelian science. And a, a brave new world had come about. But the starting point <coughs> is very interesting. And it starts, as usual, with Christians trying to do God's work. Thomas Aquinas died in the early part of the 13th century, having done an incredible piece of uh, intellectual work. But what he'd done most of all is reintroduce Aristotelian deductive logic into the Western world, where it had been missing for over a thousand years. Uh, 
And that's essential to the practice of medicine, uh, practice of science. But some of the leaders of uh, the world at that time, mainly the bishops, uh, were worried about Thomas. What would it do to the humble poor, especially when they, he saw the universities which largely start, started around that time, the 12th century. And uh, Paris was one of the big universities. And they loved this deductive logic because it gave them a way to teach, a, a structure for teaching from. They just loved it. And it, it, went, it took off like wildfire. But the Bishop of Paris was worried that some of them were getting off track as Christians quite quickly. And he wondered to what extent the universities would be dangerous. He was right. And so he banned the teaching of Thomas Aquinas and quite a few other things until they had been thoroughly discussed by the church. So the universities were all Catholic institutions, so they were controlled by the bishop, and so you had to obey. So in Paris, they couldn't use deductive logic next year. Now, I imagine they all went off to the pub and got drunk because... If you're a professor and somebody came in August and said, you can't use your notes from last year tomorrow, you would not be a happy camper, would you? Um, but when they sobered up, somebody, this is pure artistic license on my part, but I think it might be true. I'm looking forward to finding out whether I got it right or not one day. But I imagine when they sobered up, somebody said something like this. Well, we're stuck, aren't we? We can't, if we disobey the bishop, we're in deep trouble. So we can't use deductive logic. What are we going to do? We could use inductive logic. That's not banned. Aristotle never really trusted it. Inductive logic is when you start with observation as in an experiment. Then on the basis of what you've observed, you might build a theory and then you design another experiment to test your theory and so it goes on. But it's not, it's, it's starting with the particular things that we can understand and can do and can measure to try and get all the way to God. We never make it, of course, uh, because it's too long a journey. They'd been trying to do it the other way around, start with God and argue all the way down to material reality, and they get lost on the way. But if you ever hear a couple of well-trained Catholic philosophers do one of those discussions, they can go on for several hours, and they'll start with a premise, and they'll work, and then they'll get stuck, and they'll say, oh, we've gone wrong somewhere, and then they'll say, let's go back two, and they'll go back 10 steps or whatever, and then they'll try another trail. We never make the journey the whole distance. Brilliant intellectually to watch how they can hold the whole argument in their minds. Now, when I went out of the door to go to university, the last words my mother said to me were from the great apostle Paul, beware of philosophers. I don't know what insight she had. <laughs> of course, the first thing I did when I got to medical school, where I was bored very quickly, uh, was take a, a course in philosophy um, and find that they were a bit boring too because they've lost their way. And you certainly, the, the, the evangelical church is anti-intellectual, isn't it, to a large degree? Uh, we don't want them bothering us instead of taking them on, which is what we should do. Uh, and we now get over this argument. So what they did, of course, was very simple. The first real experiment wasn't done from that point onwards. It took a, uh, about half a century before it happened. The first experiments that we would recognize as modern experiments took 
place in Merton College, Oxford in the 14th century. Um, one of the people who was there at the time was a man called William of Ockham. Uh, Ockham is a village outside uh, London in Surrey, where he came from. He was a very smart young man. And he was watching what they were doing, all Christians, of course, names you should know and don't. Um, and they drew the first graph without knowing what they'd done because they were heating up a rod of iron and making what measurements of temperature they could. Uh, and they heated one end and, of course, temperature went down and they drew a graph. And that's an amazing tool. We where, what age do you get taught graphing now? It's probably in elementary school. I don't know when it is. But, um, and Ockham was smart enough to realize that what was going on had intellectual promise and dangers. And he was worried about the dangers. Uh, Ockham never wrote Ockham's Razor. Uh, that's what people have distilled from Ockham. Ockham's not easy to read if you try it, uh, but a very smart man. But he did say, your theories should not be any more complex than the facts make necessary. And what he was trying to do, and what he did, was to pull apart the things that can be measured from the things that can't, so that the church still controlled how we think about love and justice and honor and truth. His intentions were good. And he reduced science to the things that could be measured. Reductionism. Now, within science, it's been an incredibly powerful tool. It took another uh, little while. It went from... Merton College to France and uh, Buridan and Aresme, brilliant Catholic bishop who was also smart. So he was the first person, not Copernicus. He got there before Copernicus to say that it's actually, uh, as a calculating tool, easier to draw the tables we need by presuming that the sun is the center of our solar system. But it's just a presumption that makes mathematics easier. That preserved any theological problems. Uh, Copernicus wasn't willing to do that, so uh, Copernicus was not acceptable for a while. But he went through them, and Descartes was the worst bit in many ways, uh, combined with the terrible Francis Bacon, who changed the meaning of the word fact. Words change their meaning, and we don't notice sometimes. And what happened with Francis Bacon and Descartes, that the word fact became what it means to you. When you collect the facts, what do you mean? You mean nowadays, increasingly, what comes back from the laboratory, eh? What can be measured? And Occam saw that coming long before it happened. Uh, Newton was actually a medieval in that sense because he believed that moral facts were more important than physical facts but he was the last one to try and do that. He got away with it because nobody could touch him mathematically. But he, he believed in God. So did Galileo and, and Kepler and Copernicus. Uh, it's not incompatible with science. It's necessary to its beginnings because to believe in an experiment, you must believe there's order under the chaos. Christians have reasons to do that because God is a God of order in many respects. So we can expect to d dive into reality and find some order. A pagan doesn't can't even think that thought, which is why I couldn't transmit 
technical approaches to the treatment of malnourished children to people who explained it already in terms of evil spirits, their explanation was better than mine. I was stupid. The reason I made children better was because my spirit was stronger. Why couldn't I see that? That's the way the world works. So that reductionism really reached its takeoff point with Galileo because he was also a competent mathematician. And when he polished a piece of wood so that he could reduce it to a frictionless system, or at least pretend that he had, and certainly reduce it to a small influence on what happened when you roll a ball down an inclined plane. He polished that, that plank so it was as shiny as he could make it. And he was doing it for practical purpose. He wanted to understand canonry and how does a cannonball go? From Aristotle's uh, science, cannonballs would go like this, Oomph. like a, a doodlebug, which was pushed along by power. And when the power stopped, it came down. But he thought power went on until it got to the end, and then it dropped. And of course, when Galileo rolled the ball down, it didn't go in a straight line. It was a curve. And aiming weapons changed, and ultimately what he did was to start modern physics and put a man on the moon. Uh, so reductionism worked. It worked so well, and the church was a bit stupid, as we usually are, in terms of how uh, to deal with this. Galileo was not executed. He, ha he had something I'd sign up for, uh, be confined on a farm just outside Florence in Italy, and somebody can say your prayers for you, <laughs> so that your penance of daily prayers could be passed off to someone else. And you could have visitors, but you couldn't travel. Perfect. Uh, the young in university think at the very least he was put on the rack and stretched, you know, he was put on an intellectual rack. How many of you know what verse it was that got Galileo into trouble? Where does it say the world is fixed and shall not be moved forever? It's in the Psalms, isn't it? And uh, that was when the Catholic Church was more fundamentalist than we are. They would not allow it because of that song, in essence. They got over it in due course. The first thing you have to do when you read a piece of literature is decide what sort of literature it is, don't you? You don't read uh, the instructions as to how to make your latest gizmo work in the same way that you read a poem. Uh, you don't read poetry to do physics. Although all the Aristotelian period, the Greek period, they wrote their physics in poetry, a lot of it because people were not literate, but they could remember poetry more easily than others. So there's much of the early so-called science that's written in poetic form. But within 100 years of Newton, you have that key moment when uh, Laplace, uh, a very, very reductionistic scientist, but a practicing Catholic, asked by Napoleon, where does God fit into your physics? He said, sire, I have no need of God to do physics. And he was right, wasn't he? Once the methods had been established, anybody can use them. But it's a poor scholar who doesn't recognize the intellectual parents of what you're doing. And now more and more people in 
the more thoughtful ends of science recognize. And if you go to a, a, a conference on the history of science, you will hear something like this. Oh, yes, the church was not a perfect patron of science, but it was the only patron of modern science. There was no other. Science as we know it didn't take off anywhere else. Um, that just happens to be the truth. Uh, but we've forgotten our parentage. We've forgotten our history. That's a recurrent problem with God's people, isn't it? There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. What happens to the children of Israel? They become slaves. How soon after Joshua is gone and nobody knew the Torah? It happens. Then Josiah later on discovers it, but it goes again. Uh, we have the Bible, but we don't know it anymore. And if you don't believe me, you can take my test. How many of you have taken it? It's on my website. Yes. One at the back, not many. If you go to my website, johnpatrick.ca, you will find a test of your biblical literacy there. Uh, I forget what it's called. I think you can find it on the first page. I, of course, I don't go to my website, so I, and people change it. Uh, but it's a collection of about 40 or 50 phrases that occur in English literature. Metaphors, most of them. And the point of them is that you don't understand them if you don't, if they don't bring a story into your mind. There is a poem that has the line, standing amid the alien corn. What's the poem about? I've already told you that's got to be biblical. Who is it? Hmm? I'm a little deaf, so you have to be more open for the general public. That's right, it's Ruth. Most people don't get that. But you, the poem doesn't have any meaning because Ruth is standing in a cornfield in Israel. She's a widow and she's come from a foreign land, an alien, although she's actually Jewish. And she's standing in the middle of a cornfield because in Jewish law, the corners of the field had to be left ungleaned for the poor. So she can only survive because of the, the Jewish law and she's picking the corn that's left in the field for the poor. Standing in the field is Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who has a duty to marry her. The picture of Christ. All that in half a dozen words. And if you don't know that story, you will miss the whole point of the poem. And our language uh, and the literature of the Western world is totally suffused with scripture. And if you don't recognize it, you're lost. My test, by the way, has no answers on the page. Very frustrating. <laughs> uh, but it can drive you nuts in a good way. I should perhaps tell you one because it's the one that only one person got on seeing it immediately. The one couple, missionary couple, some years ago, I was staying with them and they said, have you got your test with you? And I happened to have a copy in my bag at that point. I don't at the moment. And they, bless them, went down both columns and got every single one. They loved doing it. It took them a little while. Uh, nobody else has done that. The one that gets them, I being in the way. How many of you know what that means? It's a phrase I heard quite often in my youth because it would be used in the church that I went to and everybody knew what it meant. 
It's Old Testament for grace. It's Abraham's servant when he went looking for a wife for Isaac. And he came back very quickly. And Abraham said, how come so quick? And he said, I being in the way, the Lord led me. So where at the community I grew up, if something happened that was grace in your life, you didn't even need to complete the sentence. Everybody knew what you were saying. That's a rich society. I being in the way. It's uncoded code, if you like. And we've lost our own code, haven't we? And you can test what state of decay you're in, and that should lead you to some degree of repentance by taking the test. And once you start seeing what reductionism is, it's simplification of something for our benefit. And it happens in church. We try to simplify salvation instead of glorying in its wonder. Uh, you will hear, you'll see reductionist in, in church on Sunday. I mean, sign this proposition and come to Jesus. That's reductionism. You can't find that in the New Testament. Rather, think of Jesus and Nicodemus. You can't get to where you want to go from where you are now. That's the truth of how salvation happens. Somebody leads you. Christ comes to you. Uh, and we should celebrate it. And when we do, we have... We see things happen, and that's good. Uh, but be on the watch for it. Be on the watch for it. Uh, the modern world's view of how things ought to be, rather than going back to what the Scripture says they are. I mean, what is being done to women at the moment? What has been done to women since the 1960s is horrendous. Uh, I actually realized that when I heard what was going to happen when I heard a Reese lecture in somewhere, probably 59, something like that. The guy who invented the pill, he, he gave the, the BBC Reese lecture one year, and he was uh, celebrating the fact, he said, we have divorced sexual pleasure from reproduction. The world is going to be a better place. And I was smart enough to say, I think it's going to have exactly the opposite effect. Uh, and of course it has. And they will not connect the dots, will they? Uh, if you want, to be un you want to be certainly employed for the rest of your life, you couldn't go into a better area than sexually transmitted disease, could you? Uh, it is constantly exploding, still. And you can trace that back. Uh, when I was uh, doing my first level internship in your context, the only people who would have sex at that stage, none of the medical students would, of course. Uh, the women, they would, did not want to ruin their careers. Nurses would, but they ran their own abortion clinic in the OR about one o'clock in the morning. That was the world that, of the 60s. And then the pill came along, and of course it was rampant. Uh, and in the British system, it was even more so. And I was certainly easily sucked in. But that taking my own medicine in the sense of what you did most wrong is what most other people will benefit from. The turning point when Christ took over in that area, the, when my wife-to-be came and found me after about a two-year... We went out for seven years on and off, but 
we were both always right, and she didn't learn that it was me that was right. Um, and she was a redhead then, she's grey now. Um, she came and found me in Oxford, we hadn't seen her one another for a couple of uh, years. But the, the day before she turned up, the previous night I'd gone back to my room, we lived in, residents lived in the, the hospital in those days, and so did the nurses with the inevitable consequences. But I got back to my room and there was a girl who decided she wanted to seduce me and invited her. Um, and I thought, what kind of reputation do I have? There was a voice behind me and it wasn't saying, this is the way walk you in it. It was just the opposite. And that was the turning point. Uh, and you are reaping the benefits of that, aren't you? Uh, in terms of what you see in the broken families and all the rest. It's, if we could only go back, but we can't go back easily. I mean, it, one of the great joys of my life is that three of my children went to the altar as virgins and married virgins. That's incredibly rare now. And not surprisingly, we have no divorce in our family. I mean, that is unbelievable. Uh, I'm not sure the next, my grandchildren's generation are going to get through without divorce, but uh, to have three generations on my side without divorce, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, it should be one of our markers, so to speak. And pe people don't get upset with you when you talk about it, because the hole in their heart is there. It may be the way in for a lot of people. So that's reductionism. Watch for it. It's fine. It's the way you do science. You can't reduce morality. It's not capable of being dealt with in that way. What that does is cancel things uh, and elevates you and your feelings above everything else. That's what cancel culture is. A reductionist society which is totally individualist and demands that its feelings be dominant. That's chaos, absolute chaos. Uh, and of course, it's utterly incoherent. The problem is that, that I, <laughs> another moment in my life comes to my mind, so I might as well share it on this issue. Many years ago, as we were starting Augustine College, the feminists in the university decided they wanted to uh, make it uh, a sin to upset a student. Uh, it's my business to upset students uh, for their good. And uh, fortunately for us, David Jeffrey was on the committee where it, the whole thing came to an end and became a rule. Now, they very smartly brought it in, their ideas from the Women's Studies program, just after the students had left and everybody was clearing up for their summer of research. Uh, and it would have gone through the committee. And David said, just a minute, that's an attack on freedom of speech. That's not a small thing for the university. Uh, but nobody supported him. But uh, the rector had to acknowledge that that was a point. He said, at the very least, there needs to, needs to be some discussion. And so we managed to force the, the, uh, the women's studies program to debate us. Uh, actually, they were debating Augustine College in utero. They didn't know that. Uh, and I was fighting with the head of women's studies. And I took her apart, logically, and she knew that I'd done it. Uh, 
And then she said, I don't accept your phallocentric logic. And then a thought came into my head, and for once in my life, I held my tongue, and I regret it to this day. So I've tried not to ever since. Uh, the thought that came to my mind, and I said, and I thought, no, I'd better not do that. I thought, madam, if you think with that, if I think with that organ, that leaves you at something of a disadvantage. <laughs> Phallocentric logic, indeed. Yeah. But that's the world your children go to when they go to university. The university you went to doesn't exist anymore. It's not the same place. Don't think it is. Uh, what matters now is you have to find your teachers. Now, we have a network in, in the Christian world where we can find all the best people. Uh, uh, and it's astonishing how effective it is. And you're part of it. You're one of the more important parts because you come to conferences like this and you get to know people. When I first came across this sort of uh, reality of connectedness, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the guy who did it, I've forgotten his name, a sociologist, but he posted a whole bunch of letters all over the US with the name of a, a place, uh, and just a name, I think he didn't even have the, the city. And a large proportion of the letters got delivered to an address in Boston, which was where it needed to go. Uh, but when he looked at the data, he saw that the pathway that they took, and there are important points on that, who have big networks. Uh, and I was really, and so he, he, he was the first guy, I think, to say that everybody in the world is connected by seven handshakes. Uh, can't be true. And I was at a conference like this when I read it on the plane. And, uh, then uh, uh, I did an experiment. I said, well, let's see, let's do a thought experiment. Let's see how many handshakes it will take me to get to the Pope and George Bush, who was president at the time. And uh, to my amazement, I discovered, thinking about it within an hour, that I only needed two handshakes for the Pope. Yeah, and I had two routes as well. Uh, in fact, one of them uh, would probably get me there in one, because we had the Pope's canon lawyer in the University of Ottawa, and we were friends. But the one that I got to first was a friend of mine called Ian Benson, who was a good friend of Richard Don Newhouse, who was the... Uh, first the founder and first editor of First Things, and every time he went to Rome, he had dinner with the, the Pope because they were good friends. So two handshakes to the Pope. That evening I was sitting down uh, at a table, and uh, Joe McElhaney was sitting at the table. Uh, many of you know him, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, he said, John, what do you think about these days? And I said, well, actually today I'm, I have a problem, and I explained it, and he laughed. He said, well, you only need one handshake to get to George Bush. I went to school with him. <laughs> and it is astonishing uh, the way this works. Uh, and uh, Margaret Cottle, who was one of the people who pushed me into this a little while back, said uh, that uh, I was talking to her and I said, well, Margaret, you pushed me into a lot of things. Uh, I think I could probably get a bed in any city in America in about 20 minutes now. And she laughed. She said, you could get a village in any town in America in 20 minutes. And then she told me what had happened to her about a week before. Well, she's a networker, uh, even more than I am. And 
A friend of hers had called her from somewhere in the States and she'd been talking to her neighbor over the fence who said, I took my son to the ER today. He's got a funny blotch on his leg. I don't like the look of it. I only saw a resident who felt it and said, well, there's no pus there. There's nothing we can put in a, a needle into yet, but there might be by tomorrow. Uh, come back tomorrow. And she said, the mum, having maternal intuition, said, oh, I'm not happy about it. Do you know anyone else that I could talk to? She said, no, but I know somebody who probably will. She called Margaret, who thought about it for a moment, knew an ID physician in the city, called him. He called a woman and said, come and see me now. You better bring his pajamas. He might be coming in. Of course, he had flesh eating disease. And he was operated on within hours and he was out of hospital in no time. And mum said to the, the ID physician, who do I thank? And he said, if you're going to thank anybody, you better thank Jesus. It wouldn't have happened if the bureaucrats had got their hands on it. That's our world, and we need to live within it. Uh, I've probably stayed in many homes represented here. Uh, I've got to a stage where I wish I'd kept a record, because I'm not going to go on doing this much longer, although that's in the good Lord's hands. But uh, I half think of doing a, a retirement journey in legs, you know, fly to a city and and then see how far I can get without paying a hotel bill and then flying home again. <laughs> I think it might be quite fun. But that's our world, and it's, it is so unbelievable to other people. We need to talk about it. You've got to gossip the way the Lord works in your faith, in your life. To, to the world at large, it is deeply amazing and it's attractive. The guy in the next office to me at the university, when I took, I gave up a, one, I managed to persuade the dean to, uh, which was against the collective agreement, but he did it because it was in his interest, uh, to give me a week off, a, a day a week off, and I would put that money to bring, uh, one of my graduate students had come back from Oxford and PhD, a girl, and the dean was always trying to get us to hire women. And I said, we don't hire women, we hire biochemists, and we'll take the best that comes every time. Now, Ellen was, Mary Ellen was in that category and he hadn't hired her. So I went to see him. Look, you're always bullying us. Why haven't you hired Mary Ellen? And he said, I'm sorry, I've spent the money from your department. I said, you don't have no right to do that. He said, I know, but I can't do anything about it now. I said, all right, here's a deal for you. And I said, if I give up enough salary for you to hire her, which was one day, uh, can I have that day off to spend as I wish when I wish? And he said, OK, you've got yourself a deal. And David was on my case at that time. And exponential growth was the name of the next few years. And I would go every, I'd be away somewhere almost every weekend, or at least three times a month. And the guy in the next office, he said, how do you organize that? I said, somebody sends me an email saying, will you come? And I look at my calendar, ask my wife's permission. She said, yeah, you should do that. So I say, I'll come. Uh, I'd like to have my travel costs cut cut, covered, and uh, I'll come. And I don't have to do anything else. I buy the ticket because then I get a, a flight that I can live with and I get reimbursed. I'm met at the airport. And what happens next? It's always the same. Um, somebody recognizes me. And actually, I have no difficulty recognizing who's come for me. Christians can see Christians. Uh, I'm quite convinced of that. And I usually have no costs while I'm in the States. Even if I try to pay for a meal, they don't let me do it. That's wonderful, isn't it? 
the guy in the next office, he could not believe that that's possible. How do you know people in all those places? I say, I don't, but the network does. We're all intimately related and we don't make the most of it. I think holidays, for instance, is another way that we can undermine the culture that's around us at the moment. Do you ever think of contacting CMDA members in the place where you're going on holiday before you go? It can transform your holiday and theirs. We need, that's the way it used to be. I mean, when America was founded, there were no hotels. So when John Adams was going to uh, Philadelphia on his horse, he, he stopped off at people who he knew. Uh, you read Washington, um, yeah, Washington's biography. They were always entertaining. They had to, but they enjoyed it too. We're all interconnected. Grow the connections. If you've got the gift of hospitality, you have no idea how important that is in heaven. Take what Jim Houston did. Certainly good for my life, or at least be more honest, Mrs. Houston. Uh, you may not get the credit that you would like to have, but I say to Sally when she says nobody appreciates me, <laughs> it's not true, of course. And it's just that she's a bit miserable sometimes. Uh, as you get older, she's not handling it well. Um, I say, look, I've had my reward in a way. I've had my reward for this weekend because you're such good people to talk to and get to know. Uh, so I, I've got nothing coming on this deal from heaven, so to speak. What you've done, you've often done invisibly in my life, for instance. Uh, your reward's in a better bank than mine. And that's the way to think about it. The best things are done are done without any knowledge of who did them. Uh, they're not neglected in heaven. So you can be joyful at every opportunity you have to serve because that's what it does. So think about reductionism. Ask your children what, what, what it means. Uh, they don't know. All this woke stuff and everything else, it's all reductionism. It's all reducing things to less than they really are. And you have to get back at them by looking within those things, like wanting to cancel you and social justice warriors and the like, and find the immaterial good that's in there and bring it to the surface. Now, for instance, I love it when one of these, usually women, sadly, uh, social, social justice warriors uh, get angry, which it's a specialty. That's what they do. They get angry. Uh, they can't get up in the morning and then they go and stick themselves to a railing somewhere, get arrested briefly, and then they go home and get drunk or whatever and pretend that the world is treating them unjustly because they were arrested for defacing public property. Now, when I talk, you can imagine I annoy them. Um, and they'll go after me. And I, I stoke the flames, you know, because they'll, they'll usually choose racism because that's the current trendy one. And I let them go on for a while. And then I say, OK, I understand. I think everybody is opposed to racism, I, with a, a very few exceptions. But tell me, what practical thing have you done that involves you having a personal interaction inter with black people, especially those who are poor? And of course, the answer is none. They, they can't say anything. I say, well, at least on that account, I do slightly better. We adopted a, a black boy from Kigali after the Rwanda war. Never formally, because he was 19, but it took me two years to get him through the, the uh, 
system. He's now a lawyer with the federal government because uh, he's highly desirable. He's bilingual, French and English, and he's six foot five and as handsome as you can come, black as the ace of spades and always immaculately smart, unlike me. Uh, he's a highly desired person to have on the staff because you can tick so many boxes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I can tell the story in the appropriate way. And, then say, uh, and I also have, technically, although I don't know them well, a hundred black grandchildren. And then everybody stops and says, what do you mean? And I explain that uh, my daughter in Malawi has been picking up abandoned children in Malawi for 20 years now and has raised them. And the first one is in university. One of them is in university now. Um, the audience bursts into applause. Students do. And the point is made. Social justice warriors who have no practical evidence that they've done anything for the people they say they care about are hypocrites and they should be exposed as such. Uh, and of course, the church is the only place where racism begins to melt. Who were the first people to actually stop slavery? His, uh, I may have asked this already. Have I asked you the date of, in Britain, England, uh, banned sla slavery? Uh, no, 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 hang on, don't, don't answer the question out loud. Uh, let's start, it wasn't Wilberforce. It was before that. Anybody know? Don't answer it, just raise your hand if you do. That's interesting, none of you. If you put it into uh, Wikipedia, it won't come up because it's in the early uh, 12th century. Yes, 12th. And it's in London. Uh, Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. It was near the end of his life. And they had a, the London Conference at which he persuaded them, and the church controlled England in this sense at that time, that it is unacceptable for Christians to have anything, any slaves. Slavery was the norm in the world. He, this was the beginning of the breakdown. I mean, it, Paul put it, there's neither, he doesn't say there are no slaves, he says within the church there are no slaves, neither male nor female, bond nor free. But Anselm and Britain banned slavery, the slaves in Britain, uh, I think 12th century, but you can look at it. So just look, go to Anselm first, Anselm of Canterbury, and then the London Conference, and you'll find the first banning of slavery. Do you think there's a BLM person who knows that? <laughs> it really blows them away when you tell them. You can find it also in uh, Tom Sowell knows it, the best black scholar I know. How many of you have not read any Tom Sowell? It's one or two, putting your hand up like this. Put it up like that. It, it, it makes you, you know, you've made a commitment now. Tom's soul is gold for us. Uh, and all these things that are the list there, the list that drove Alan to put this conference, he's dealt with every one of them uh, in the most principled way you can do it. And Tom's soul is a member of the Hoover Institute. He's a black scholar. Uh, when he was in his 20s, like me, he was left of center and he was a Marxist. I never actually joined the party, but I was selling their materials in the university. Um, he was born in the Carolinas to poor people and his parents promptly died. And the family had to have a conference about this little boy who they recognized was smart. Uh, fortunately, 
two members, two women, had gone to New York and they volunteered to bring this boy up. So he was moved to New York. Fortunately, they had friends who understood the education system and they, this guy said, look, smart kids can go to any school in New York. They don't have to go to a local school. So he got a very good education, uh, which you could get in those days. And on route, he says, we often slept on the fire escape in summer when it was too hot. Or we'd walk down to the river and sleep on the bank. A lot of us. Uh, I never heard a gunshot when he was growing up in New York. That also is another thing that black lives don't matter. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, the illegitimacy rate was the same in blacks and whites. The black family did not, was not destroyed by slavery. It was destroyed by liberals. Uh, most noticeably, uh, 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 we'll leave that one out, it gets too complicated. But no, it, it, the person to read, if it's a sub subject that interests you, is Gertrude Himmelfarb from uh, Harvard, who wrote a book called The Demoralization of America. She's a, a brilliant scholar, and uh, her interest was Victorian literature, and she got into this by realizing that the illegitim illegitimacy rates in England during the height of the Industrial Revolution were in single digits. Not anymore. So the breakdown of the family is a 20th century thing. And it's hit poor blacks most. Johnson bears a lot of the a lot of the blame. But that's another area. So uh, he grew up, uh, loved, educated, uh, left school and uh, his English teacher said to him, the first thing she did was stop him using black speech. She said, the world operates in English, and if you're going to be taken seriously, you must speak good grammatical English, and I will not accept anything else. He couldn't do that today. That would be demeaning in one way or another. It's not. It was the exact opposite. She was saying to Tom Sowell, you have got a good mind. I'm not going to let you wreck it by silly, not, silly commitments. And when he left, she said, don't come back to see me till you've got a PhD. So he immediately joined the Marines, <laughs> where he was an instructor in firearms. Uh, he finished that, and then he got a scholarship. He went through university and did very well. Uh, he didn't like Harvard. He spent quite a while in Chicago. He's good friends with Milton Friedman and with uh, uh, the, the Chicago School of Economics. Um, and he's written, he's now 90. He's written three books since he was 80. And Tom Sowell's rules, when any public policy comes up, you ought to have them as a reflex. If we had used them in COVID, we wouldn't have had the disasters we've had. Uh, the first rule about any public policy is, okay, this is what they're proposing. Look at what, this is what we have now. What do we do about that? We've got to think about everything, including doing nothing, all the possibilities. Then the next one is, what consequences can be foreseen? I mean, the pill ought to, the church ought to have foreseen. The problem is that it will lead to much promiscuity and all that follows from that, inevitably. Because when you're young and the hormones are flow, flow, flowing, uh, the fact that you know the girl is highly likely to be on the pill and if she isn't, it's her fault. Uh, the rest is going to happen. It's predictable. So find out 
the consequences. And finally, show me the data. And show me the data is the big one. Because he, when he was still a student, got a summer uh, job with the Department of Labor. Uh, you know, it was a gift, so to speak, uh, funded by the government. And they'd got this bright kid coming to the Department of Labor. He was a Marxist at the time. But he had this very solid approach to the nature of knowledge. And uh, they said, well, the, do you know which, is, which uh, law occupies most of the uh, Department of Labor's employees? Well, it's minimum wage, making sure that it's obeyed and uh, all the rest. A large proportion of the Ministry of Labor is concerned with that. So they said, well, we, the most important legislation that we're in control of is minimum wage law. Um, we know it's wonderful, but we don't actually have the data to prove it. So you go find the data. That's a very Obama-like. We know what the answer is. You go and find that we're right. But it was Tom Sowell. He didn't find that they were right because he had the mind he had. Then he realized he was in a very interesting position because your minimum wage law started before the Second World War. And then, of course, during the period of the Second World War, before and after, it didn't reach the top of the list of things to do, the to-do list. So it had stayed at the same figure for 20 years, and inflation made that figure now ridiculously small. And now it's coming up again. So he had data from the minimum wage law when it mattered and when it didn't. And he could look at what the correlates were. And what he discovered was amazing. It's a very bad law. And the people who've been hurt most by minimal wage are poor black communities. And you are being hurt by it now because Thomas Sowell traced the route to gang violence to minimum wage law. Brilliant. Because every teenager uh, from a poorer background has to find their own money for anything that's in any way luxurious. And, you know, I grew up in that. My dad earned six pounds a week when I was a kid. That's less than 20 bucks. We lived on that quite well. I didn't know we were poor because nobody told me. I was loved. I was fed. I was watered. We even had a holiday. We managed to save enough somehow. Um, most years. It's not like that anymore. But what you did, if you wanted something, I wanted a decent bicycle. I liked cycling and I... I could get a job. I wasn't bothered. I didn't even ask what the minimum wage was. It didn't exist anyway. I went looking for a job, and I found one. And when I got enough money for the next project, that was it. And I ended up riding my bike all over Europe. By the time I was 18 and going to university, I'd been as far as Vienna and Italy and all over the Alps and all over Europe on my bike, starting at age 12. Uh, that was the world that was. Uh, but you didn't ask about anything other. You just wanted to know if there's enough money. You were still being, you got your food at home. So he found that when the minimum wage law was introduced for the first time, a black kid was more likely to be, have a job than a white kid because there were more poor kids whose only way of making some progress was to get a job of some sort. So they learned at some minimum wage uh, income rates uh, to get up in the morning, uh, to do the job properly, all the sorts of disciplines you need to learn. Uh, in those days, if you went to the cinema, some young person would show you to the, 
seat with a flashlight. That doesn't happen anymore because the, tra the profit margins are so small that they can't afford to pay someone at minimum wage just to show people to their seats. So it's gone. All sorts of civilities have gone. Um, and of course, a black kid who's going to work every day in the summer is not going to join a gang. Then minimum wage law comes in and all those jobs are wiped out. And now you've got a large bunch of uh, peak hormone flow, angry young people on the streets. Yeah, the rest is inevitable. So he said, you need to cancel it, wipe it out. Of course, they did everything they could immediately to suppress everything he'd done. He gives an account of it. Uh, the place to start before you read his books, because he'll suck you in, he's, he's such a lovely guy. He's been, ed he's been interviewed many times on, at, on the Hoover Institute Uncommon Knowledge site. Uh, Uncommon Knowledge, uh, Peter Robinson, all the things on the list that you're dealing with have been talked about there. And there are long discussions, serious, good discussions, not, not inaccessible. Uh, they even had the guys who got COVID right, the ones who were cancelled, the Great Barrington uh, Declaration. They were on uh, uncommon knowledge. And in fact, Peter Robinson's just re-interviewed uh, Jay Bhattacharya. And now that he's been shown, the three of them have been shown to be absolutely right. If we'd followed their advice, we would have done it right. And uh, Peter Robinson ends the interview saying, what would you think should happen next? And with a little smile, Jay Bhattacharya says, mm, an apology would be nice. <laughs> it's not going to come, but it will go through the courts. I mean, it's, there's going to be some degree of responsibility, but of course, civil servants, you'll never get them. Uh, they, will not pay, they will not have a price to be paid. And that's one of the things we need to change. So that's the world that you're living in. And you've got to build some more resources. I mean, if you once a week sat down with some friends and watched an hour-long Peter Robinson uh, interview. You would talk for an hour afterwards, uh, and you would have different conversation points in the next week. There's been a brilliant uh, couple of uh, ones recently by Kotkin, who, another blue-collar kid who has written, he's writing a three-volume biography of Stalin. And he's just published the second. So that's available as a discussion with Peter Robinson. And it is full of information and stories that we need to know. You know, what's happening in America today and in the Western world, it's not new. It's happened before. And again, it's an American scholar who's brought it to my attention anyway, a guy called Mawson. And you'll find him in an article in First Things a few months ago. But liberals shoot themselves in the foot. The communists have never won an election. They only get there by coups. Uh, that's their problem. And uh, uh, what happened before 1917 was the liberals started doing all sorts of things which they thought felt nice. And they actually paid for people to murder them, their own group. And as Lenin said, they will buy us the rope and we'll hang them. And he did. And Kotkin documents the way Stalin did it. I mean, Dostoevsky predicted it, except that his prediction was too small. He said a million heads would roll. It's more like 10 million or more that have rolled because of socialism outside a Christian culture. It can work for a while in a Christian culture. It grew in England because of the Methodist revival. What's the theological error at the heart 
of utopian government. What does it not take into account? Hmm? What? Sin, sin, human nature. Yeah. It's utopian. And they never work because they're unrealistic. You couldn't trust me. I couldn't trust you if I had absolute power. Uh, as Gandalf says, he will not touch the ring because it would turn him into another Sauron. Uh, the more educated you are, the less power you should have, the more checks and balances you need on you, because you tend to believe you're right. Ordinary people don't have that option. So they have the wisdom of looking at the data and being unable to deal with it. And they don't fall for it in the same way, but they do fall for bribery, which is the way most elections are won. Uh, we ought to be talking about these things, and we're not doing it. So. I hope you're going to read some history. Uh, read, find ones at a level you can read. Certainly, Paul Johnson's Birth of the Modern is so worth reading. Um, he even predicted Chechnya in it, which is amazing. And he writes on his own. Uh, sadly, he's been somewhat and rightly uh, cancelled in some publics because he was always going on about things like marriage and then it turns out he had a mistress for many years. But that's the way it goes. Um, but his, his writing is brilliant. Uh, maybe the intellectuals is the one to start with. He had the bright idea of saying they're always attacking Christian work in the past and not giving due credit to what they did and arguing they should have uh, been living in a way that nobody had even thought of at the time, uh, instead of looking at what impact they made and whether they improved things, which they did. So he had the bright idea of saying, well, let's look at the icons of the 20th century and see how they lived. It's brilliant. Uh, all the students like the, uh, the French, uh, what's his name? A libertarian. The name's gone for the moment, but... Uh, he was so proud of his genius, he kept a sex slave all his life, and every time she got pregnant, despite the fact that he, he uh, charged the Catholic Church with everything, he dumped the baby at the Catholic Church. And he goes on like that. They do not have a good record. They'd be cancelled if they were alive today, but the liberals uh, cancelled that bit of history. But you can't do that. It's breaking out. That's the good news for us. If we, the more we learn, the more truth we speak, uh, we win. There's a lovely black woman who does a history type thing and she is willing to be the victim and she's done one just recently on Tom Sowell and slavery. And as he fills in all the things and the real history of slavery, her face is a picture to watch. I've never, it, it's, she's awestruck. Why didn't anybody tell me any of these things? We're at fault because we've given up education. So it's got to change. Uh, I've talked to one guy so far at this conference who says he wants to come and do the summer program. Uh, some of you are here. Raise your hands if you've done the summer program at Augustine. I know there's some here. Those are the people to talk to over there. Um, and then you can come and do it because it will fill most of these gaps in due course. It, it's been running 20 years. Uh, it, it was started by American physicians on, getting on my case. Um, 
because I had friends at the university that all these things were commonplace discussions, uh, that's what makes me able to do what I do. It's gift. And uh, some physicians discovered that we were running this program for, for kids because we started the course because the probability of your children getting out of university with their faith intact is about 20% and getting worse. Follow the pew if you want the data. Uh, and evangelicals are particularly vulnerable because of our naivety. Uh, and going to Bible school actually makes it worse because you come quoting scripture as though it's authorita authoritative, which it is, but not for anybody in the university. And clever professors can take you down with lies very easily and, and tricks of rhetoric, and that's what they do. And they take pleasure in it, which is even worse. Better a millstone around their neck. But we were aware of this, and the net result was we ended up starting a program outside the university. We couldn't do it within. The feminists would not allow it which teaches young people the history of Western culture based on the proposition that we are the products of Hebrew and Greek thought modified by the church, which is true. Uh, there's a little input from the Muslims, which is largely the way they took care of the Greeks in around the 11th century, but nothing very much. And the secularists don't like that. So we can't possibly get it in the university. But we started, and we've been going. That started in 97. The kids who come lay down a solid foundation. They're, they're not likely to give up their faith lightly. Uh, probably 75 80% uh, retain a faith after they've been with. We're not 100% successful. Nobody would be in the current world, but we get close. Uh, we've, we've had a suicide. We've had a... Uh, a, drug, a drug addict or a couple, but that's, that's it pretty well. Uh, and so I teach the history of science, faith, and medicine because you can't understand science properly if you don't see what, faith role, what role faith takes. Everybody operates on the basis of faith. Every argument has to have a premise to start with that has to be self-evident. If nothing is self-evident, then nothing can be proved. So if you think you know something, then you ought to go back and find what it's based on, what the premise is. And when you know the argument, you're in a much stronger position. Um, so shortly after we'd been doing it a few years, uh, a guy on the West Coast somewhere, uh, he said, look, you've done a wonderful job with my son, but I can't talk to him anymore. Um, I'm ignorant. What are you going to do for us? And I, my usual empathetic and kindly way, said, well, I've actually written you off as irredeemable, but... Yeah, you do have something I need, your money. What would you pay? And I thought about it. I said, could you go see me credit in ethics? I said, we could probably swing that. So we set up, we broke our eight-month program down into modules, and we can get through it for doctors in about eight, month, eight months. Uh, no, eight years, but one week a year. So the first or second week of June every year, they come to Ottawa. It's a unique conference. I mean, I've never seen that kind of evaluation before. And uh, we've, we're down to the last one in this category, but we had, a, until two years ago, about six of them who hadn't missed in 20 years. And then illness started to catch up with them. And this year, uh, was, there was only one, but he's still going. And the reason, they say, it gets better every time you go through the course. And we knew we were onto something big because women are good at those kinds of intuitions. And one guy from Arizona, 
his wife signed him up for the next year before they went home to Arizona. And the next year she said, I was right. He lives on what he gets here for a year. Because you can't have free conversation, can you, in, the, in your workplace anymore? You never know who's listening and who may want to cancel you or whatever. So when they arrive, it's like homecoming. And they're mainly recidivists. They keep coming back. And so they make friends and they welcome any newcomers that come along. And they have a week in which they can talk about everything. We only do two lectures a day and two question periods a day. The afternoons are free to digest the morning and uh, in the evening uh, after the second lecture, we have dessert and coffee and it usually goes for a couple of hours of Q&A. Um, it, and it's such a joy to teach. Uh, it's as it should be. It's medieval living again with uh, argument, laughter, all those things that you've forgotten exist in an academic environment. So. Uh, if you know anybody who's drifting away from the church because it, it's not meaningful, it's not purposeful, make a missionary sacrifice and bring them with you to take that conference. They'll love it. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe, share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe there as well. If you guys have questions, feel free to ask that by going to the link in the description down below or going to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next week.